Would you turn with me in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 20? We're going to start three verses earlier than what it says here. So starting at verse 17 for a moment and then through to verse 28. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. I wonder what that was like, how people responded to that. That must have been unique. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. He called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Margie and me. We were just like that. That's what Mr. John Cooper said upon the death of his wife, Margie. The story is a remarkable one, and it's a touching one, and it was carried by the banner on June 16, 1985. Maybe some of you remember it. John and Margie Cooper were married in 1941. Four years later, John had been able to purchase his first 10 acres of land upon which to start his life of farming. He started small, but he had big dreams. But then, in November 1945, Margie got sick and became permanently ill with polio, an illness that forced her into an iron lung for survival and an illness that would change the life of the whole Cooper family. Now, an iron lung is something that's an old machine. I got a picture here. This is what an iron lung looked like. Some of you who are older may remember these things in the hospitals. Uh, They were like the respiratory machines. They were respirators that helped you to breathe. And I noted from the, this is an electric one, and then at the back there you see a handle in the distance there that if the power went out, 
people would pump this thing to keep the person alive. And if you want to go on YouTube, if you want to see how these things work, uh, they're just absolutely remarkable machines. They're as old as the hills, but not really that old. Many of us remember them from our own lifetime. And certainly this is where Mrs. Cooper spent 40 years of her life in one of these, in one of these things. So that's just a picture to keep you, so you got in mind. <clears throat> this particular illness and this iron lung situation changed the Cooper family's life. John Cooper gave up his farming career and virtually lived in the hospital for four years. And finally, when his wife was able to come home again, he did everything for her. They would take these machines home as well. Son John Cooper, who was a chaplain, at Calvin College, who wrote the article about his parents, said, quote, every morning he lifted her from the iron lung and gave her daily care, washing her, brushing her teeth, combing her hair, rubbing her back, dispensing her medications, and more. He was the hands by which she did things. He turned pages in a book or a magazine he fed her, he switched on the TV, he wrote the Christmas and the birthday cards, he did the shopping, he cleaned the house, and so on, unquote. She was his whole life, and he entirely hers. And he didn't only carry on like this for one or two weeks or one or two years, but for nearly 40 years. Son John wrote, quote, But what staggers me most is that he did all of this so uncomplainingly as if it was no big deal. Hero though he was, he never considered himself one. And when asked about how he did it all those years, he would reply with surprise at people's questions. And he would say, I, I love my wife, and I'm a Christian, and we try to keep our promises. Almost like, so what's the big deal? That's just the way we do things. Now, I'll never forget this story. 1985, it goes way, way back. Such a story is an absolutely beautiful illustration of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 20, verses 26 and 27. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now granted, such a statement seemingly makes very little sense in terms of our daily experience. That which Mr. Cooper did for nearly 40 years defies much of modern human understanding. Actually, people like John Cooper are considered to be oddities in our society, something worth writing a newspaper article about or putting in a museum or whatever. After all, in the mind of the world, being great, being first, and important is usually thought of in terms of power, of special abilities, or of military and economic strength. Jesus said as much in verse 25. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. 
Think about our own life. Think about our culture, our youth culture. In terms of our own lives, to be on top, to be someone of significance, to be important or noticed or first or whatever term you might want to use, it's often measured in terms of how good we are at sports, how big our muscles are, how well our mind functions, whether or not we can throw a good party. It's measured in terms of our looks or the cosmetics or the clothes we wear. It's measured in terms of how cool we are, how many names we can draw. For others, their sense of importance is measured in terms of how hard they work. Perhaps how many places they have traveled to or how much money they can show that they have. I mean, think about it. Who are considered to be great and first in this world? Who do we admire? Who do we try to be with? Think of some of the Proverbs that, that John quoted this, this morning. Some of the Proverbs speak about this too. Someone like Mr. Cooper, who looked after his wife quietly in his own home for 40 years, who, who probably rarely ventured out, or someone who's a champion or a rock star, or who looks who has good looks, or money, or troops, or power at his disposal. The fact of the matter is that, generally speaking, the latter people are considered to be great and first in our society, and everyone seems to want a piece of that action. Just think of the popularity of the reality TV shows that draw people by the thousands for an audition, hoping that they might be the next one chosen to be a star. Think of the boys and girls involved in sporting events, hoping to be discovered to be the next sporting superstar. The celebrity culture that we live in is disconcerting and really has things upside down, biblically speaking. Well, Jesus' disciples were influenced by the world culture of their day. And when we look at it, we discover that there's really nothing new under the sun. And so we read that one day the mother of James and John came to Jesus with her two sons, asking that they be given places of prominence in Jesus' kingdom. Grant that, verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Think of that. And the request was not solely from the mother, but from the two disciples themselves as well. To sit at the right and to sit at the left-hand side of a king or ruler in those days meant that they would hold the second most powerful positions in the kingdom, much like Joseph held in Egypt under Pharaoh. So this was quite the request. How Jesus, our Lord, must have suffered even his own disciples, those who walked and talked with him for the years that he was here on earth, even his own disciples misunderstood his very reason for coming. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was heading off to Jerusalem to, to set up his kingdom. He would drive out the Romans and he would liberate the land. James and John only brought their misunderstanding to expression for the other disciples, though they had not asked the question, were no better. Verse 24, we read that they, upon hearing what had taken place, were 
filled with indignation. It's too bad we didn't get there first, I suppose, in some way. And this reaction on the disciples' part is such that one surmises that they actually may have wanted these positions of importance for themselves, but now James and John beat them to the punch. As far as the disciples were concerned, before Jesus was to take back the land, they wanted to make sure that they would be recognized in the new kingdom, and so they vied for prominent positions. But then Jesus very quickly deflated all the egos involved and brought before them a totally new way of thinking, a paradox. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So whereas the kingdoms of the world are characterized by lordship and by economic worth and by whom you know, by how much military power you have and so on, the kingdom of heaven is characterized by service. Be servants, said Jesus. That's how one ought to live in the kingdom. All over the world and throughout all the ages, the ordinary man has seen dignity in being served and has seen indignity in serving. But now Jesus turns that axiom around and upsets mankind's sinful apple cart. That which we think is normal and natural in the eyes of the sovereign God is not normal, is not natural at all. The distinctive characteristic of the kingdom is service. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to be first? Be a slave. Now, it would seem from this portion of Scripture that the basic meaning of the words servant and slave are synonymous, even though the emphasis of each word is perhaps somewhat different. The Greek word used for servant is the word diakonos, from which you probably recognize we get the word deacon and diaconate. In the deacon, the word and deed ministry come together. Not only do deacons or are deacons called upon to serve people in terms of their physical needs, but they're also called to speak words of Christian encouragement. That's what the form of ordination says. The old ordination form talks about deacons speaking words of consolation and cheer from Scripture. Mr. Cooper, John Cooper, was a true deacon in that sense. And to serve means to be involved in selfless, loving actions. These are to be selfless actions not done with a great deal of hype. Hey, look at me. Look at my service. Look at my actions. Are you taking note? That's not the way they're supposed to be done. Nor is our serving to be done with grumbling. You're going to hear about that this coming Sunday morning. Generous, joyous, generosity, actually hilarious giving. John, there's a challenge for you for Sunday morning. Talk about that, hilarious giving. <laughs> Service basically means fulfilling the law 
of love. Love God above all and your neighbor as yourself. So truly serving, as we saw also a while ago, is to place others before ourselves and do whatever we can to advance their good name and it means to work in such a way that they come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ through us. Our serving is to be done in a spirit of humility and selflessness so that one day when we stand before the Lord, He will say, Come, you who are blessed by the Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And upon hearing that, we're going to say, What? Really? Because for us, it was just an ordinary way of life. It was just ordinary. Like for Mr. Cooper. We may not think anything of it. Much like Mr. Cooper reacted when the press asked him how he managed to live all those years with such a dependent wife. For him, it was nothing special. It was merely his service to the glory of God. That's just what he did. To be great in the kingdom is to be a servant, living a life of selfish devotion to the Lord and to one's fellow man. To be first in the kingdom is to be a slave, totally subject, totally surrendered to the master, to our Lord. You know the song we sing? Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as you will and when and where. It's easy to sing. It's easy to sing. But it's quite another something else to allow the Lord to indeed do that. But to be a slave is to then do whatever the Lord has prepared for you to do or to go wherever the Lord decides that you're going to go. A slave is someone who's usually considered at the bottom of society's ladder. He's one who is owned by the owner without rights. Isn't it interesting that heaven turns such a ladder upside down and states that those who have fully subjected their lives to him are first in the kingdom. And those who are indeed carrying out the commands of the Lord, those who are his true servants, are the greatest in the kingdom. To be great in the kingdom is to love. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what is that love? Well, that's explained further in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to deal with that in the new year. We as believers are all called to be servants and slaves. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, verse 28, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to have servants, but he came to be a servant. 
And by this statement, again, the disciples and the Jewish ways of thinking were set on end. The Son of Man, the Messiah, was not going to be a great and earthly ruler who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and he would make the Romans the present enemy, his slaves and his servants. That wasn't the case. Instead, Jesus served his people by dying for them. What a weird Messiah. What Messiah dies for his people? This one does. On the cross, he paid the price for our sins by giving up his own life selflessly. He became the least for us. And he was a slave in that he obeyed the will of the Father perfectly. He gave the supreme sacrifice, setting us free, ransoming us. And because of his great sacrifice and his obedience as a slave, he who became a curse for us, who hung between heaven and earth, not wanted by either, who died with the lowest of society, became the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He who became a servant, he who became a slave, ascended into heaven and now sits upon the throne and rules in majesty and in splendor. And that shouldn't surprise us, says Jesus, because that's the way it is in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be first, you must be last. You must be willing to serve to uncomplainingly care for your wife in an iron lung for 40 years, perhaps, not expecting any sort of recognition or reward. True greatness comes through love, through the giving of oneself. And if you find it hard to understand, then take another close look at Jesus, our Lord, and read about his anguish and read about his love for you and for me, as we'll also celebrate in the sacrament. Now, this idea that true greatness comes through love, through the giving of oneself, is not always easy for us to understand, because in so many ways it goes contrary to the way in which we normally function in this world. And yet I suppose the question needs to be asked, so how come this is not easy for us? Is it because we've become so much part of the culture of the day that we're thinking no differently from what is presented in virtually every television show or every magazine or every book on the shelf? If truly serving is really tough, perhaps we ought to be asking ourselves some tough questions. How Christian are we really? How much understanding do we really have for what Jesus Christ has done for us? Why do I have to be cool? Why do I have to be served by others? What is there about power that attracts me? Why do I find it difficult? to serve, and so on. And I suppose as we prepare for Lord's Supper, as you live your Christian life, as you go from day to day, we need to be 
honest about such questions, and we need to ask ourselves such questions. And then be honest about the answers. As believers, as Christians, we're called to serve. There's simply no way around it. And it ought to be second nature to us. So that we would be very surprised that anyone makes a big deal of our service. Like Mr. Cooper was surprised when he was considered a hero, someone special. And you know, when we serve in such a way that it's just second nature from us, and we're surprised if someone says, you, you know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat, and we go, really? Where did that happen? That's just the way we do things. When we live that way, we truly reflect Jesus Christ. And when we truly reflect Jesus, then others will take notice. But if we just do as the rest of the world does and live with the same set of priorities, no one will know that we are Christians and then really we grieve the Spirit. As you think about stewardship, as we think about stewardship, our life of service, think about what Jesus said. If you want to be someone, if you truly want to serve, forget about all the latest fads and forget about all the thoughts of stardom or of greatness. Instead, become a servant. Become a slave, like Jesus did for us. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he became a servant and a slave for us. And now that's what we are called upon. We are called upon to be counter-cultural and to live in such a way that we reflect who Jesus is and what he has done. And, oh, Lord, we'll confess that at times that's pretty tough. That's pretty difficult for us because we do live in a culture that doesn't call for that at all. And so, Lord, grant us your Holy Spirit that we may truly reflect who you are and truly be servants. In Jesus' name, amen.